Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. Welcome to episode 0000126 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, broadcasting to you from, well, Radio City Docklands. I'm not going to lie to you. And Radio City Docklands is on Wurundjeri Country, who are part of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I remind everyone listening, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We have uh, what I can only describe as a fantastic show, if I push all the right buttons. Um, it's it's going to be a great show this evening, so let's get on with it as soon as possible. Shortly, we'll be joined on the line by four-time Premiership player and 407 AFL game legend, Sean Ballone. Uh, as you may or may not know, uh, Sean's stellar career came to an end earlier this year when he retired with a whole bunch of, uh, uh, I guess, um, legendary achievements behind him. He's got a book out that tells about his experience at the elite level and it's entitled Silk and we'll talk to him about that and more shortly. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by the chairperson of the Uruk Commission, uh, Professor Eleanor Burke. We've had Professor Eleanor on the show before, uh, just when she started her new role, but uh, last week the commission announced that there was um, some strategic priorities that it will be actually going for and conducting for what promises to be actually a very arduous but vitally important truth-telling process in the weeks and months ahead as we move slowly but surely towards treaty or treaties in this place that we now know as Victoria. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Now to tonight's first guest. Earlier this year, one of the great AFL careers came to an end when Hawthorne and Port Adelaide 400 gamer Sean Burgoyne hung up his boots for the last time. Four premierships, one with Port Adelaide, three with Hawthorne. He's third on the all-time games list with 407 games and number one when it comes to the most games played by an Indigenous player. Of him, his friend and now former coach, Alistair Clarkson, has said, as a player, Sean had a rare quality reserved for the elite in the game, a capacity to not be flustered when in possession of the ball, no matter the moment and no matter the chaos. While he made uh, the game look effortless at times on the field, uh, off the field, his journey to come back from a debilitating knee injury in the latter years of his Port Adelaide stint, he had to reinvent his approach and role to the game with the Hawks. He's captured his journey and all the stories within it in his new book, uh, Silk, Football Family Respect. And I'm very pleased to say that Sean is on the line with us now. Sean, welcome to the mission. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, yeah, very excited to be on the show and have a good have a chat. Uh, just because I've um, admired you for, for years and I'm actually a bit of a fanboy, um, I just want you to let <laughs> me know that this is going to be a hard-hitting, um, unreserved um, interview. Do you, is it, can I just make that clear from the outset? <laughs> That's all good. <laughs> no, um, 
Um, congratulations on the stellar career. Um, every AFL career has its ups and downs, um, but there has to be some constants that keep you going uh, week in, out, putting on the footy boots. Um, what were some of the constant factors that keep you going week in, week out for such a long period? Um, there's probably two phases, to be honest. Um, the first one, when I was at Port Adelaide, probably, I was just riding the emotions of playing AFL footy, um, playing for the team that you know, I grew up supporting Port Adelaide and um, enjoying that. And then when I made the, the switch to, to Hawthorne, um, um, I came over and um, I had two boys, two young sons, uh, a three-year-old and a six-month-old. And then I, as my career progressed through Hawthorne, um, I had another two girls and my children came along and um, the, the motivating factors of playing footy in front of them and having them enjoy watching me play the game and, and in all honesty, creating some family memories kept driving me on and, you know, the, the, the constant support that, that my wife had given me along the way and sacrificing um, a lot to, to have me play AFL footy is, you know, some of the driving factors behind probably me going a bit longer than probably most players. Beautiful kids they are too. Um, you, you and your wife, it was a big decision for you and your wife, Amy, to, to come over to, to Melbourne because you had to leave your extended family network there when you're raising some some young kids. What was it about what Hawthorne offered you that, that sort of made you get over the line in terms of coming to play football in Melbourne? Yeah, well, a few different reasons, obviously. The main one being Alistair Clarkson was my coach at Port Adelaide, my assistant coach, and um, he was the main reason. Andrew Russell, who was the head fitness coach, was my fitness coach at Port Adelaide. So they were probably the, the two major reasons. And once I'd sat down with Clark, I had to say, well, I'm coming to Melbourne. I want to play for you. Um, we went through the, the team list and, um, you know, I got there end of 2009. And, you know, in 2008, they won the flag, missed the finals in 2009. And a bit of the, the, the chats, a few of the chats I had with Alistair when I was in the decision making in my mind was, we basically got the same team. So we had an 08. Um, and there's some factors why we missed, you know, the finals in, in 09. But I can see our team bouncing back. And when you've got Hodge, Mitchell, Lewis, Ruffin, Rioli, Franklin, um, just to name a few, um, the decision made it, you know, pretty. The decision was pretty easy to make to go to to go to Hawthorne. Yeah, some some handy names there. <laughs> um, at the, um, I mean, towards the end of your stint at Port Adelaide, though, um, it kind of highlighted what a brutal industry that AFL can be because you were placed under serious, serious pressure by coaches and, and the playing group um, to, to press on when you had what was actually a very debilitating uh, knee injury. And you were, you know, I wouldn't say forced, but you were, you know, highly encouraged to take painkillers week in, week out to, to see the season out. Does that sort of pressure still get applied to footballers today or is there... Has there been some change around that? Yeah, yeah. The uh, well, the pressure I was under then was yeah immense. You know, I was vice captain, and we were just hovering just outside the eight, so there was a lot of pressure to keep playing. Painkilling injections were um, well, well, they're still around today, but they were probably more used then. And the pressure to have those when they're probably looking back in hindsight, the, the correct decision would have been to sit out the rest of the year and sort of playing, receiving jabs and multiple jabs, um, which ended up you know, wrecking my knee to a certain extent. So I think as time go- has gone on, you know, the, the medical um, teams at AFL clubs have, have gotten have gotten a lot better. They're obviously, they're sophisticated with science and the medical stuff that they all get in now is first class and um, they, they take care of their players really well. And uh, my experience at Hawthorne is they 
they put me as a person and my health um, first and foremost and me as a player second. Um, so I put all the trust and faith into those medical guys and um, I think our coaching group, like Clarko in particular, had a really good understanding with the medical staff when they made decisions to um, generally back them in. So um, yeah, I can only talk about myself and my own interactions with Hawthorne's medical staff and they've looked after me um, unbelievably well and helped me actually, instead of playing three years at Hawthorne, I ended up playing 12. Yeah, not a bad outcome. Um, one one thing I noticed in, in, in the book, um, Silk, was uh, that there seemed to be a really, like you just mentioned, there seemed to be a really, really wraparound culture of, of players, treating them not as cattle but as but as human human beings. And that relationship between the coaching staff and the medical staff seemed to be really, really tight-knit. Um, does that feed into what a winning culture looks like? What, looks like what what are some of the core elements of what a winning culture is well there's yeah, there's a whole you know a whole array of different different things that add to the winning culture i think standards um generally you know high standards but when you've got good people involved in a footy club they generally make good decisions and they base those decisions off um you know um you know judgment and realistic calls and i think you get good people in good positions and you put faith in everyone to do their job, um, it, it goes a long way. And then that, the off-field stuff generally helps the on-field stuff um, and vice versa, on-field stuff helps <laughs> the off-field stuff and, you know, footy club, you know, growing memberships and and, and those type of things. So um, generally everyone who's there um, within a footy club is going in the same direction as a footy club, whether it's on-field or off-field, um, you know, generally helps with, with a winning culture and, when you when you when you live and breathe it every day and you see it, you you want to be a part of it and you want it to grow and I think um, through that period from 2010 um, when I came on to the scene and I was um, helped building that culture with a lot of other players a lot of players a lot of staff members um, just wanted to to to, to grow and um, we, we were able to get to that point where we won, won three grand finals in a row we're on the back of having high standards and all those other things I mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that comes through from a distance as as, a, as an you know observer of the game. It just seemed that Hawthorne it still does, but but particularly during those um, you know those you know premiership years, um, recent premiership years, because the clubs won so many premierships in the yeah. modern era. Um, yeah. It seems like you really had um, the act together as a, as a club. Now you're the only 400 gamer that's only had. Two coaches. So you've had yep. um, Mark Choco Williams and uh, Alastair Clarkson. Um, could you describe um, the difference between uh, the two? Because from afar, they seem very different. Um, what's it like being in the inner sanctum with both of them? Yeah, they're, uh, they're two very smart men. Um, they're mm. really different, but they're very similar in a lot of ways as well. You know, they're both fierce competitors. And they both strive to be to be great. They want to be the best and both be innovative, innovative um, with their ideas. And um, they're very, very fierce. I can, they're probably more similar than actually <laughs> than people would think, you know, um, both right. really good family men as well. And um, I'm extremely lucky to have those two guys in my career. And I know some of the other players um, from other clubs have had five or, you know, five or six different coaches, but you know, I've loved every step, every step of the way of my journey with those two guys. And, um, you know, it wasn't smooth sailing with those guys as well. When I first started, they were extremely 
it's been extremely hard on me because they wanted the best for me and I appreciate that as I've gotten older. Yeah, I think um, great coaches are often harder on some of the great players than they are on some of the, I won't say mediocre, but some of the, the, the I guess, um, in the middle of the pack sort of players because they recognise potential and they and they want to see that potential full, fulfilled. Would that be you know, a correct assumption? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure to be honest what goes on in the coaches in, inside their minds, but for me, <laughs> that, for me, um, you know, when I first started under Choco, I thought he just didn't like me. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was always yelling at me and always making me do extras, and it wasn't until about three or four years, or maybe even five, when. Um, he was like, no, mate, this is my way of showing my appreciation to you by giving you my undivided attention and time and being extremely hard on you because I'm not going to accept you giving me anything but the best. And I needed that tough love. And Clark had mm. brought that same attitude towards me too when I when I first started. So um, I'm very, very appreciative because without that type of um, effort into me when I first started, there's no doubt I wouldn't be the player I am today. So... Um, yeah, it's it's something when it, something where now where I look back and I'm so appreciative that it was tough and hard at that that period of my career, but I'm thankful that they that's that's what they've done for me. And while um, Choco is no longer a senior coach, everywhere he goes, he has massive um, yeah. success. Yeah, well, he's a smart man. <laughs> he's a very very smart man, and um, you know it's, it's great to see um, him still involved in the game and having an important. I know if you ask the players that he's. Um, helped along the way. They'd say the same thing. I said, you know, he he, he expects you know um, high standards, and um, which is which is great. It's twenty three past seven. You're listening to the mission on our Triple R one hundred two point seven. I'm speaking with the great Sean Burgoyne about his career and his new book called uh, Silk. Now, um, I think it's fair and sad to say. Uh, Sean, that um, every Indigenous player to play the game has experienced racism at some point of his or her career. Um, the same is true of uh, you, of course. To matter my book, obviously, growing up, I experienced some racism and um, so did a lot of my cousins and, you know, you know something that we, um, yeah, we had to deal with at that stage and then, you know, I touched on, you know, later on in my career that coming through and, um, and witnessing um, some of the things that have gone on in AFL as well over time. So mm. I think um, as AFL players or, you know, as an industry, we've got a huge platform where we can help, you know, create some some social change. And um, I think we've definitely seen that over the last few years, players becoming more stronger in their, in their voices and their opinions. And um, hopefully uh, it continues to grow as well. Yeah. So you think that um, we're making progress in terms in terms of that awareness around around the issue? Yeah, I think as you've seen, there's a number of players now who um, will speak up and voice their opinions. And um, clubs are made up of multicultural players now. Um, you know, so it, it's it's um, the game's forever changing in, in what it looks like, which is only a positive thing because everyone brings something different to the game. And um, I think. You know, it's going to be around for a while, obviously, racism. It's been here forever and um, I don't think it's going to go away. But I think the more people we um, have on board and, and, you know, obviously fighting, you know, to, to try to stop racism, the, hopefully the less incidences we have. But, um, yeah, it's one of those ones that's going to be an ongoing thing for a while. Yeah, and I guess it reached. Uh, I mean, it's, it's reached a number of seminal points in terms of you know racism within the VFL slash AFL. But during yep. your time as as a player, the the Adam Goods um, saga 
was probably the zenith of it all. And you say in your book very honestly and very um, openly that the AFL wasn't quick enough to act. Um, the AFL community wasn't quick enough and act to act. Follow players weren't quick enough to yep. act. And you you also judge yourself quite harshly in, inside that assessment as well. Yeah, well, you know, it's obviously what I think is public, I think is is the truth. What I what I said is, you know, we were mm. way too late to help Adam in his fight um, against that. So. Um, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, Adam's a legend of the game. We should be treating our legends with the utmost respect all the time. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, I think it's a black mark against the AFL's name. And I think everyone in the, in the industry um, agrees that we were too late to stand up and support him. And on the back of that, and that's what I, what I touched on before, you see more players now um, more willing to stand up and fight. And unfortunately, it's just, um, yeah, we, we should have done that earlier with Adam and to help stand beside him, not behind him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, it's a shame that players have to keep, you know, Indigenous players have to keep leading the charge on that. And um, um, But, you know, that's a really, I think, positive and healthy reflection um, that you've had um, yep. there. Um, now, I spoke with um, Eddie Betts a while back on his retirement um, for an article in Indigenous X. And I asked him what he was looking forward to eating as a normal person yeah. <laughs> now that he was no longer an elite athlete. And he said um, uh, he said that he'd always eaten what he wanted because his metabolism yeah. was, was so high. And yeah. um, that kind of, I guess, would make him the envy of a lot of yeah. <laughs> AFL players across, across um, the AFL world. That the same can't be said of you, can it? <laughs> um, well, in terms of eating, eating what I want? Eating, right? eating what you eating what you wanted uh, while you were playing. Oh, uh, I, uh, yeah, I was very very strict on myself to be honest when I played. Mm. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I became a bit obsessive probably um, because I needed to um, become elite and everything to to help my body and help my knee. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't eaten chocolate or lollies in probably about six or seven years now. So. Um, wow. Time will tell. Will I, time will tell. Will I get back onto the on the on the chocolate train? <laughs> my, my wife and kids um, <laughs> they tease me most nights, and I like just have a bite. Um, but I'll I'll see how long I can hold on for. Yeah, well, it's um, an absolute testament to what it takes to to, to be elite, and you were elite, believe me. Um, w- before I let you go, two two questions. Um, yep. When when you play in or you're in a system like the AFL for so long. Um, I often wonder what it's like to step out of that, and whether there's a you know a sense of you know a massive void having to be, to be filled. And I yep. think perhaps there's there's a lesser extent um, of that sense when there is um, when you're part of a team sport, but I'm sure it's there um, nonetheless. So what's it like walking off the ground for the last time after 407 games? Yeah, it was a bit different. There was uh, there was no crowd. Um, yeah, there was no crazy. crowd. As a draw, so that was a really weird way to end my career um, with that. But I got to to walk off the oval with Clarko, and um, which I, you know, obviously it was unbelievable sharing that moment with him, and obviously Basha Hawley and Dave Ashbury as well retiring. So no, it was um, something that um, every player has to experience at some stage. So no, it was, uh, it was just a bit more of a different feeling because there was a no crowd and <laughs> it was a draw more than anything. So I'm not too sure if a normal game would feel like that. And I retired. So what's next for uh, you, Amy, and the kids? What have you got? Planned? Yeah, well, well, I just actually I'm just watching my son finish up tennis lessons. <laughs> um, 
We're uh, right. currently just yeah, we just relocated back to South Australia in Adelaide. Um, so I've, I've currently taken up a position with Port Adelaide uh, to work in a off-field role there across a few different areas. Um, you know, a bit of list management, a bit of government corporate relations, and a bit of Indigenous liaison officer and, and community stuff. So there's a bit in that and. I've also um, recently started my, my own cleaning business, ACS Property Services, which is an Indigenous cleaning business based in Melbourne, but will be national. So oh, um, I'm going to be fairly busy, yeah, so hopefully I can create some jobs for Indigenous people out there and, and continue to help better some lives. So I'm going to be really busy. <laughs> well, magnificent. You were, you were always going to land on your feet um, when, when you finished AFL, and that's what you're doing now. So um, congratulations on a fantastic career. Uh, I'm a tiger man myself, um, but no. I really, I never, I, I never begrudged you and Cyril um, uh, <laughs> displaying your stuff week in week out. It was a joy to watch, no matter who you were playing against. So, um, yeah. thank, thank you for being such a fine example um, to not only your family but to our people. Um, Silk is out now through um, HarperCollins and available in all good bookshops. So go out there and get you a, a copy. It's a great read. It's an easy read. And it gives you a real insight into what it takes to be um, an elite AFL footballer for 407 games. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute no pleasure. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to The Mission on Triple R 102.7 through the National Indigenous Radio Service and on Koori Radio in Sydney. So hello to all our friends up there. Now to tonight's uh, second guest. The Uruk Justice Commission last week announced its official strategic priorities, which will guide its historic task of investigating ongoing injustices faced by First Peoples since colonisation. As outlined in the strategic priorities document, Europe will focus on four priority areas throughout the process as necessary first steps, laying strong foundations for trust and cultural legitimacy, honour First Peoples, elders and preserve knowledge, lay the foundation for a comprehensive picture of systemic injustices committed against First People and promote a coherent and holistic reform agenda. Now, well, here to speak to us about these strategic priorities, who better than the chair of the Europe Justice Commission than uh, Professor Eleanor Burke? Uh, Professor Eleanor Burke is a distinguished Wangaya Wamba Wamba elder. His outstanding leadership and tireless dedication to advancing Aboriginal education and communities has spanned over 40 years. She's made a significant contribution to Aboriginal affairs and human rights. And she has a list of achievements as long as my arm, and my arm is a long arm, so just so you know. Um, Professor Eleanor, welcome back to the mission. Good evening, Daniel. Lovely to speak with you again. Now, the rubber is really beginning to hit the road now when it comes to the work of the Commission, is it not? Well, it is um, in a COVID way, I should say. Uh, we were really had to uh, focus our minds to what we could possibly do uh, working under the conditions that we've been working and uh, with the um, uh, the goal of having to have an interim report ready by the 30th of June. And uh, we worked out uh, some things we thought that were doable uh, and helped us think about the priorities around uh, the things that we needed to do uh, for the 30th June for that interim report for the government. And uh, as you read out the um, 
the four priority uh, strategic priorities, uh, laying strong foundations for trust and cultural legitimacy, were about communicating with uh, our mob, the uh, traditional owner groups and other groups, peak groups, as many as we could, uh, in, in the, the way that we have to communi communicate at the moment, and we're getting through that. Uh, and uh, also concerned about how we can get out to speak to elders uh, when we can get out, and given the limitations again, uh, where we may not be able to access um, elders in uh, in uh, situ while the COVID's around. So we had to think about uh, those things. What was really practical, and um, we're still. We're still in communication with people, keeping up to date with how best to to use our time until we can meet face to face with people. Uh, the last two um, priorities are, uh, for the um, from our planning are about trying to get um, our heads around uh, reporting on the uh, systemic injustices. We all know and have stories about systemic injustices, but we want, when we have the voices coming to us from our people, to be able to use that in the best uh, way possible uh, to promote the, um, the reform agenda when we get to that point. So still a lot to do. Yeah, tremendous. I mean, it's clear that a tremendous amount of thinking has has gone into this, and it's clear that you've got a massive agenda moving forward as well. I don't need to tell you, of course, aren't. But when um, trying to to push, uh, I guess, progress to to push change, to to push any sort of program or policy agenda um, uh, with uh, Aboriginal communities. It's really, really important to be in the room with them and to actually eyeball people, whether they're elders, youngsters, or in between. Um, so that must have been, you know, you've, you've, you've touched on it, but the the added burden of not being able to do that through COVID must have been, um, you know, really, really challenging. Well, it is, and it's the challenge is still with us because we're at the point yeah. where we're really, really itching to get out and, uh, you know, we're hoping that we will have changes, uh, you know, potential to, to have some face-to-face -face meetings because that we need that next step. We've done some introductory stuff with some groups, but we need to take those next steps where we're talking in depth about the, the kind of issues that, you know, we're, we're talking about in the, prior, in the priorities. And we need to do that with uh, people that are um, going to be part of um, the discussion and have things to tell us from their point of view. Again, you know, going back to the, the need to hear Aboriginal voices as soon as we can, that we'll underpin whatever's on the um, historic record. And, and we've got, had a glimpse of that with what we have done to date and mm. that makes us uh, even more frustrated, to be yes, honest, because yes. we know... Now that people want, some people want to tell their story, they want something known and uh, have already flagged that with us in just in introductory conversations. So um, we're just hoping that, um, you know, we, 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 we're a little bit um, 
uh, scared in one way that, um, you know, it goes on too long uh, because we're now saying, well, you know, it mightn't be till after Christmas, but, mm. uh, you know, come just before Christmas, it won't probably wouldn't be a good time. But we'll see. We'll, we'll just have to cut our cloth as we can. We'll do what we can, when we can. And there are other groups who, you know, feel the need they wish to speak with us and they're already flagging that to us that uh, they want to come and talk uh, or they want us to go and talk to them. So that's that's all there now. Uh, and so we, we feel frustrated and we feel the pressure that uh, we're not uh, doing things the way we thought we would be. Uh, but we're finding a different way. And I guess uh, one of the important things has been really the media coverage that we've had has informed people, I hope, more people, mm. uh, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, and uh, we think that's a really good thing, uh, educating the public about um, what's happening. And uh, we've had um, such good coverage and really good responses, really, uh, from media and uh, it's a kind of educational process in itself really the way it's getting out um, yeah uh, and we're pretty pleased with that so I'm pleased to be talking to you again yeah well, it's always an absolute pleasure to speak with with you too I guess that's one thing I guess the uh, that the pandemic has afforded is it's able to um, allow the commission to get its messaging um, really down pat and and out there and there is tremendous media uh, interest there's been a number of articles in the age for instance um, over recent weeks talking about the importance of treaty and and the, and the truth telling um, commission but I I can guarantee you everyone that's listening tonight, can sense that you're like a called up spring, <laughs> ready, yes, ready that's, and that's willing to go to out to the community, ready and willing to go yes. out into the community and speak to people about uh, this really um, important process. Um, yes, but but there's been a tremendous amount of thinking uh, go into these um, four principles. So, what what and who informed the commission's thinking around the development of those principles? Well, in in our couple of weeks that we had together, we did, you know, do some workshopping around a whole range of things, including, uh, you know, how we wanted to present ourselves to people. And as I said, we have spoken to many groups uh, already, um, you know, via Zoom or Teams, as we've had to. And uh, as um, I've alluded to, you know, there are indications of, uh, you know, people wanting the follow-up, having more to say about a range of things, all within the scope of our terms of reference. And, uh, and so that's, that's, uh, we know that. So it's a matter of uh, being able to do it, uh, you know, face-to-face because we can talk to more people usually. Uh, now, how that's going to play out later, I don't know. We, as you know, I'm working online, you know, you're in a one-on-one situation all the time, you know, mm. with a, a single group. So that that's the linear kind of um, way of doing it. But we, we are, we're, we're persisting with, with that and, uh, and getting through that and keeping in touch with... Um, you know, corresponding with people, saying things to groups that we've already spoken to about the second round and we've already had quick responses from some of those people. 
but we're mindful of others that we haven't got to yet just because of the sheer number. And again, we've communicated through um, the uh, social media and through organisations so that organisations can provide uh, members more information at the local level around these issues and especially around these for um, uh, strategic priorities at this point in time because we're asking also for feedback from uh, people about um, our thinking and our planning as well. It is uh, 13 to 8 here on the mission. I'm speaking with uh, Professor Eleanor Burke, who is the uh, chairperson of the Europe Justice Commission. Um, uh, and I think one of the, the, the things that um, I'm not sure whether people realise or not, but such that the process of itself, the process of truth-telling, is as much a educational experience and an educational opportunity to not only educate um, uh, non-Indigenous people but to um, educate our own people as well and give ourselves some perspectives about what's happened to us. And I guess that's where Priority 3 really sort of, I guess, looks at that quite closely. Um, and uh, just a reminder, um, Priority 3 is lay the foundations for a comprehensive picture of systemic injustices against first peoples. Um, what, are you, what are you hoping falls out of that priority area for uh, the Victorian public, both black and white? Well, we're, we're hoping to... Um to conduct research that is um, gives the story. You know, we, we're starting from colonisation and we've had a certain kind of treatment uh, right from the beginning. All of the things that um, were done at the time, we want to lay that on the record uh, so that it's there, for, you know, into the future for... Uh, other generations, uh, that people can't say they didn't know yes. uh, and they don't know. And uh, one of the things about being part of a Royal Commission like this and having that particular job, which is a huge job in its own right, huge amount mm -hmm. of research, but there is so much evidence, so much stuff on the record, so many previous uh, inquiries, you know, parliamentary and uh, going right back from the beginning uh, uh, with uh, the colonial governments, there's, there's just so much on the record that uh, describes what happened. Yes. And, you know, one thing about uh, these early um, people, they wrote, you know, they were good bureaucrats in the colonial oh, system they had and wrote a lot of things pens, down. Yeah, yes. <laughs> they were lethal with their, and, with their, with their clerkship. Yes, and and the other thing that's striking too is the contradictions. You know, on the one hand, we've got to protect these people, embrace them as citizens, you know, and then on the other, doing things that were completely contrary. Again, all of it kind of laid out on the record, but we've got to unpack that and see how that continued on, as we know it has, uh, down the generations of families. You, know, you only needed three or four generations and you're back, you know, to that time with some of our yeah. families uh, and the impact is, you know, is with us still. 
It absolutely, absolutely kept resonating with us. Um, one of the things that I'm always astounded by is when you go back, as I have been doing recently for a separate project, um, and, and looking back at the various acts of parliament and um, uh, just the way that uh, the public servants and the clerks of the time were so efficient in terms of carrying out the policy of the day, which was basically, wasn't it, Aunt, to, to, to breed out the Aboriginal race uh, first of all, in the colony of Victoria and then in the state of Victoria. Um, and, and people need to be made aware of that because it's documented, it's it's a, it's a fact. And the, the Truth-Telling Commission, the Euro Commission, is an opportunity to to be able to unpack all of that. That That is going to be a tremendously complex task, isn't it? Well, it is. It is a research, a big research project that we'll be taking on. And it's interesting you raise that because, you know, one of the uh, ideas was that they didn't really have to worry too much because we were going to die out. But it took until, you know, 1920s, 1930s to really, for people to comprehend that wasn't going to happen. We weren't yes. going to go away. And indeed, where would we go? This is our place. This is where we belong. This is our country. This is our, you know, all of the things that are familiar to us, the stories of that place and um, our people's um, origins. We, we still had that in our memories and different people had different stories. And thankfully, we've strengthened in that area, I think, uh, even in recent times by the way um, there's been recognition of who we are by our own names, which was mm. something that didn't happen not very long ago. So there's been a turning of, uh, of, of that. And I think many others are interested to know more about how we've been so resilient. Uh, and uh, the records, I think, will show uh, you know, that we weren't passive People, but no. at the same time, we were treated very badly. We were treated very badly again, you know, in the, in the taking of our land. I think there's a real hunger out there amongst the the general community for that sort of knowledge and and uh, to understand that sort of uh, resilience. And uh, your role as the chairperson of the Europe Commission is going to be absolutely central to making sure that uh, people become aware of that. I really, really like having you on the show. <laughs> uh, so um, let's um, let's keep uh, in touch as uh, this process rolls out because it's it's going to be um, fascinating. It's going to be uh, traumatic, but there will be humour in it as well because this is the way our mob work. Um, but um, uh, thank you so much for, for, for your time and uh, keep up the good work. And I hope you're able to get out there um, and speak to people face-to-face -face soon for the sake of everyone around you. Look, I'm sure, Daniel, it'll be news when we have our first face-to-face -face meeting. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. You know where to come back if you ever want to yarn. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>